Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Herbert Smith Freehills Unbundling Competition podcast. In this episode, our second episode in the series, uh, we'll be discussing the complex interactions between competition law and the ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Movement. My name's Philip Aitken. I'm a Senior Associate in the competition team at Herbert Smith Freehills, and joining me today is Marcel Nuez and Sakayuki. Marcel is a competition partner, is a partner in our competition regulation and trade team based in Dusseldorf. And uh, Sukuyaki is a comp- corporate and MA partner at Herbert Smith Freehills associate firm HBT. She specialises in competition law and leads the HBT competition practice. Hi, Philip, and hello to our listeners. Hello, Yuki. Hi, Philip, and hello, dear listeners. Uh, Thank you very much both for joining me today. Um, We've got a lot to get through, but we might just start by framing framing the problem for discussion. So to overcome certain environmental challenges, it will sometimes be helpful or even necessary for businesses to collaborate. Um, And this is quite normal. But um, as competition law prohibits certain forms of restrictive agreements between competitors, this type of collaboration can create tension. Uh, So to my mind, the environmental or the ESG and competitive market objectives need to be balanced. On the one hand, it would be unfortunate if collaboration leading to massive environmental benefits couldn't be pursued because of of possible technical competition law contravention. But on the other hand, it would be unfortunate if ESG collaborations could be used as a stalking horse for anti-competitive arrangements that wouldn't even really give rise to sort of material public benefits. And it seems like competition law authorities around the world are grappling with this challenge. So today we wanted to look a little bit more closely at the intersection of ESG and competition laws in the EU and the UK and the APAC region and to discuss latest developments in these areas. So uh, perhaps we can start with the EU. I understand that the topic of sustainability is um, high on the agenda of uh, many of the competition regulators um, in the EU and in member states. Um, So um, Marcel, uh, maybe we can start with you. To what extent do potential ESG collaborations raise competition law issues at an EU level and how the European Commission uh, consider such issues? Thanks, Philip, and and happy to shed some light on the situation in Europe and where, as you say, we have a lively debate on how competition law and sustainability policies can work together. The current approach of the European Commission is to provide guidance on the basis of the existing rules rather than crafting a new framework. So just just for for your background, dear listener, in in the European Union, Article 101 TFEU prohibits any anti-competitive agreement affecting trade between European member states provided no exemption kicks in. Hence, starting point for any assessment of sustainability agreements is whether such agreement restricts competition, i.e. whether it falls within the scope of Article 101 TFEU. Regarding the question whether an agreement might be restricted of competition, the European Commission has provided guidance on the assessment of certain corporations in its guidelines on horizontal agreements. This includes types of agreements which would typically also be relevant in a sustainability context, such as research and development agreements, joint purchasing, production agreements, commercialization agreements, and standardization agreements. To date, horizontal guidelines do not deal with sustainability considerations. However, 
the European Commission is in the process of revising its guidelines and a draft of its proposed updated version, which was issued in March 2022. Currently, the horizontal guidelines do not deal with sustainability considerations. However, the European Commission is in the process of revising its guidelines and the draft of its proposed updated version issued in March 2022 now includes a specific chapter on sustainability agreements. Uh, thanks, Marcel, for that overview of how the EC regime currently works. Uh, you mentioned that the horizontal guidelines are currently under revision um, and that this revision will inc include a chapter on sustainability agreements. Are you able to shed some further light on that? Sure. Sustainability agreements are defined in the draft horizontal guidelines as any type of horizontal agreement that pursues one or more sustainability objectives. Under the draft guidelines, the initial assessment or test is basically twofold. So where such agreement does not affect the parameters of competition, price, quality, quantity, choice, innovation, it will normally not raise any competition law concerns and should therefore not be caught by Article 101. Conversely, where sustainability agreements affect one or more parameters of competition, they require much closer scrutiny under Article 101. And the draft horizontal guidelines focus in particular on the analysis of standardization agreements, which are expected to be the most frequent form of cooperation for pursuing sustainability objectives. The guidelines provide for a soft safe harbor under which standardization agreements fall outside the scope of Article 101. To that extent, the agreement needs to fulfill the following criteria. Transparency, voluntary participation, freedom to adopt higher standards, no exchange of sensitive information, non-discriminatory application, and a monetary mechanism to ensure compliance. The soft safe harbor will only apply if the standardization agreement will not lead to a significant increase in price or a significant reduction in the choice of products. Unfortunately, the European Commission does not clarify, at least not, based in, at least not in the draft, when a price increase could be considered as significant. Companies should therefore be cautious when assuming that their price increase is insignificant. Thanks, Marcel. That's very interesting. So I think experience shows that many agreements uh, will, are likely to affect one or more parameters of competition. So based on sort of what you said, it sounds like many sustainability agreements will be caught by Article 101 and then require an exemption. How do, how do you think this will work? Yeah, I mean, as, as with any type of agreement caught under Article 101, in order to benefit from an exemption, a sustainability agreement needs to fulfill four criteria. First, the agreement needs to contribute to improving the production or distribution of goods or contribute to promoting technical or economic progress. Any such efficiencies will need to be objective, concrete and verifiable. Second, the agreement should not include any restriction that is not indispensable. Where legislation already requires businesses to meet a specific sustainability goal, any restriction in an agreement between competitors aimed at achieving that goal will not qualify as indispensable, unless the aim of the cooperation agreement is to reach the goal in a more cost-efficient way. The draft guidance recognizes that a sustainability agreement may be necessary to avoid free riding on investments that are necessary to achieve a sustainability goal. This is the so-called first mover disadvantage or to achieve economies of scale to cover the fixed cost of setting up, operating and monitoring a sustainability standard or green label. Third, consumers must receive a fair share of the claimed benefits. 
this will be the case where the benefits for the consumers resulting from the agreement outweigh the harm caused by it. The draft guidance I refer to distinguish between three different types of consumer benefits, individual use value benefits, individual non-use value benefits, and collective benefits. And finally, the agreement must not allow the parties to eliminate competition in respect of a substantial part of the product at stake. This condition will be met even if the agreement relates to the entire industry, provided the parties to the agreement continue to compete on at least one key aspect of competition, such as price, quality, or variety. The elimination of competition for a limited period of time, e.g. in order to introduce to the market a sustainable substitute for an existing product, will also not be an obstacle, provided there is no impact on competition in the market once the period lapses. Thanks, Marcel. I think that's a really sort of comprehensive summary of what the position's like um, in, in the European Union. Maybe we'll move now to um, discuss some developments in the UK. Um, I understand that in January 2021, the UK Competition and Market Authority published some guidance on the application of competition law and sustainability agreements. Yeah, you're right, Philip. In the UK, sustainability agreements are assessed under Chapter 1 of the Competition Act 1998 which prohibits agreements, decisions, and concerted practices between undertakings which have as their object or effect the restriction, distortion, or prevention of competition within the UK. As with the European Commission, the CMA, which is the regulator in charge in the UK, has adopted an approach of positioning sustainability agreements within the existing antitrust framework, and in Jan 2021 issued guidance to help firms engage in collabor collaborative agreements in the context of sustainability in a competition-compliant manner. Here, the CMA defines sustainability agreements as cooperation agreements between businesses, including industry-wide initiatives and decisions of trade associations for the attainment of sustainability goals, such as tackling climate change. It goes on to acknowledge that sustainability can have a broad definition, but states that the scope of the guidance issued so far is limited to environmental aspect. Thanks, Marcel. Um, I find it really interesting to compare and comp contrast the approach that has been taken to these issues in Europe and the UK and how we would deal with it under Australian law. So um, just sort of zooming out, under, unlike the EU law, where I think the European Commission and courts can decide um, the types of conduct that fit within a per se or object prohibition and conduct that falls within an effects-tested uh, prohibition, Australian legislation has clearly defined categories of what we call per se prohibitions. And so those are the prohibitions that relate to conduct that's always prohibited, regardless of the effect on, co on competition. Also, unlike the EU, in Australia, parties are able to seek authorisation or permission to engage in certain forms of conduct that would otherwise fall within the per se prohibitions, uh, but which give rise to public benefits. So there's some two sort of structural differences in how Australian competition law works compared to competition law around the in, in other jurisdictions around the world. And then when I think about how this plays out in terms of environmental collaboration agreements. So similar to um, the approach in the EU, Australia's cartel laws strictly prohibit agreements between competitors that have the purpose or effect of fixing prices or the purpose of restricting outputs or acquisitions, collusions in tendering or bid rigging, or sharing markets and allocating customers, suppliers, territories, etc. 
Um, however, so it's clear that certain types of environmental collaborations could potentially raise um, cartel issues. So the example that comes to mind is, say if there was an agreement between two competitors and they'd agreed that they were going to switch from a cheaper input that was an environmentally harmful input to a more expensive uh, a, a more expensive but environmentally friendly input, uh, that type of agreement not to acquire the environmentally harmful input would potentially uh, raise competition issues. And now, in some circumstances, these issues can be resolved through the application of the joint venture exception in Australia. So um, generally, if there's a joint venture and the joint ventures for the production, supplier acquisitions or acquisition of goods or services, the joint venture is not for the purpose of substantially lessening competition. And the cartel provision within the joint venture agreements is reasonably necessary for and for the purposes of the joint venture, then the joint venture exception will apply. And what that will do, if that exception applies, is it will mean that the conduct falls outside the per se always except always prohibited bucket and it will only be prohibited if it has the purpose if the conduct has the purpose or effect of substantially lessening competition however um, in certain circumstances where maybe there's some uncertainty regarding whether the joint venture exception will apply or there is a um, potential uh, substantial lessening of competition purpose or effect or because parties simply want greater certainty regarding their conduct, then they can approach the ACCC and seek ACCC, seek um, authorization from the ACCC on net public benefit grounds. So net public benefit grounds are where the conduct gives rise to substantial public benefits and those public benefits outweigh the detriments of the conduct. So uh, typically any anti-competitive detriments. And um, it's clear from the ACCC's guidance that environmental benefits are an accepted category of public benefit that the ACCC will consider in an authorisation process. Um, and um, in particular, those guidelines note that environmental collaborations can give rise to public benefits um, by improving economic efficiency through addressing a source of market failure or market imperfection. Uh, so in particular, though, the environmental collaborations can address a market failure by um, addressing and overcoming environmental externalities. So environmental costs that are not inherent um, in the product. And we've seen a number of examples where the HLC has authorised conduct um, on the basis of net public benefits and in particular environmental public benefits. Um, and one, I think, uh, there's a range of sort of stewardship type arrangements and the example that I'd refer to um, and a sort of well-known example is from 2020 where the ACCC authorised the Battery Stewardship Council to introduce and what that um, arrangement did is they introduced a levy uh, to enable the responsible disposal of um, expired batteries. So there was a levy that was applied um, to imported batteries and then members within the scheme also agreed that they would only deal with other members of the scheme. So they there was a, essentially a boycott of members out, of um, suppliers outside of the scheme. Um, and the idea was that the levy would be passed on to consumers, um, but the uh, funds generated through the levy and rebate scheme would be used um, to assist with responsible um, the responsible collection, sorting and processing of um, expired batteries. 
Um, so I think uh, when I sort of think about where we're up to with Australia and uh, what Marcel has said about the position in the EU and the UK, I think uh, Australia's heading in the same the same direction as the EU and the UK, but I think the approach that we're taking to get there is um, slightly is slightly different. So Yuki, I think um, you've heard how the how we do things in Australia. I'd be very interested in uh, in your perspective of how these issues are being handled across other APAC jurisdictions. Um, I'm at least aware of um, at least one high profile case in relation to palm oil producers in Indonesia. Maybe you could tell us some more about that. Thanks, Philip. On Asian jurisdiction, uh, we can start with Indonesia. Yes, yes, you are correct that there has been a high-profile case in relation to palm oil producer in Indonesia. It is called the Indonesia Palm Oil Pledge or IPOP. IPOP was first signed uh, by Indonesian palm oil giants, including Wilmar Golden Agri Resources and Cargill in 2014, to for to promote sustainable practices in the palm oil business in Indonesia. Later in 2016, IPOP set particular environment standard as a pretext that made it impossible for small farmers to sell their crops to the giant companies. For that, the IPOP allegedly demanded that giant companies to reject palm oil produced by small farmers. The authority claimed that by setting this standard, the IPOP uh, potentially acted beyond its authority. This is because the government has set uh, the standard for the industry, known as the Indonesia Sustainable Palm Oil or ISPO system, more stringent requirement than what have been regulated according to the government may potentially create market entry barriers to palm oil producer in Indonesia. The pledge was eventually disbanded in response to the comments from the competition authority. In general, in Indonesia, none of the competition laws and regulation expressly addresses provisions relating to ESG. Consequently, in general, any horizontal collaboration relating to ESG would in practice be treated like other general coordination activities among competitors. This will therefore need to be assessed on case per case basis. And for, and for uh, enforcement uh, purposes, it will most likely relevant based on rule of reason principle. One solution that can be helpful to promote ESG in Indonesia is for the government to issue specific sectors regulations on ESG to bridge the gap between ESG and the competition law. This is because there is a specific exemption under the Indonesian competition law uh, competition law, uh, that the competition law will not be applicable to any arrangement which is performed to implement the regulations. Outside Indonesia, there may there, there are many great developments uh, in Asia on the area of ESG. Historically, competition law was regarded as an obstacle to promote ESG. Nowadays, at this stage in Asia, although there has not been a clear focus on the intersection of ESG and the competition law, some major, some major jurisdictions have incorporated the concept of ESG into their competition laws. As such, competition law has no longer been regarded as an obstacle to promote ESG. Thanks, Yuki. I'd, I'd love to hear more about uh, what's happening outside of Indonesia. So if you could expand more on uh, some additional Asian jurisdictions, that would be fascinating. Let's see. Uh, let's, let's, let's see China. China is the only country in APEC which explicitly incorporates the concept of ESG into its competition law. 
Articles 13 and 14 of the Anti-Monopoly Law or uh, AML prohibits anti-competitive agreements. Article 15 of the AML sets out a list of potential exemptions to Articles 13 and 14. Relevant here is the fourth exemption, which this applies Article Articles 13 and 14 of the AML. Uh, AML. If, it, if, if it can be proven, first, that the agreement or collaboration serves public interest in energy conservation, environmental protection, or disaster relief. And second, that the agreement reached will not substantially restrict competition in the relevant market, and that consumers will share the benefits derived therefrom. That said, to date, there have been no published cases applying to the Article 15 exemption, and no additional guidance is available. In Japan, the Japan Fair Trade Commission, uh, or G GFTC, said that the Anti-Monopoly Act is sufficient to deal with any antitrust issues that may arise from companies collaborating on their efforts for zero emission. Reiko Aoki, a commissioner of GFTC, also noted that the GFTC may be willing to trade off social benefits to relevant issues that might otherwise restrict competition. For instance, in June 2020, the GFTC allowed three convenience stores to agree to set plastic bag prices at 3 yen, partly because such agreement will benefit the environment. In Singapore, there are no specific guidelines or exemptions in relation to ESG. Further, there is no precedent to show that the Competition Commission of Singapore, in, of Singapore, of CCCS, and the Competition Appeal Board have considered ESG initiative. Having said that, pursuant two paragraphs, two, uh, uh, 2.5 2 and 2.6 of the Business Collaboration Guidance Note, anti-competitive agreements may still be exempted if its economic benefits for instance, lower cost, improvement in the quality of services or the production of new innovative products outweigh the negative competition effects and cannot be achieved without the agreement and any restriction in it. Recently, CSSS has declared ESG to be one of the key priorities in 2022. Meanwhile, the competition authorities in some developing part, uh, countries, for example, Malaysia, have prioritized ESG. Thank you, Yuki. I think um, there's certainly a lot going on. I appreciate we've only had a few minutes and we've only been able to scratch the surface of a, a small handful of jurisdictions. But the, I think the key takeaway really is that when you look around the world, uh, competition regulators or competition authorities in different countries are really, uh, there's an increased focus on ESG and there's a lot happening in this space, particularly um, in Asian jurisdictions. And I think it's going to be an area where there's going to be more guidelines and more policies that are published in the future. And so an area where there'll be increased certainty to businesses that are looking to move into ESG collaborations and not quite sure how the competition law implications of those um, collaborations will play out. Um, however, unfortunately, I think that's all we've got time for 
for today. Um, I, I, if it was up to me, we would talk about these things for hours. But thank you, uh, everyone, again, for tuning in. And thank you to Marcel and for Yuki for um, those very valuable collaborations covering uh, so many jurisdictions. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do check out our other instalments in the Unbundling Competition series. And if you have any comments, questions or thoughts, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch.